World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Hi, and welcome to the main part of today's episode. Today, we are speaking to Dr. Haley Lewis of Halo Psychology. Really excited to have her here with us. Hi, Haley. Um, Hello. Welcome to the podcast. It's been a long time. I've been waiting patiently for this. Welcome to the podcast. It'd be lovely if you could just introduce yourself to our audience and maybe say a little bit about yourself, your background, the kind of work you do. Thank you. And thank you for asking me. I, I've been waiting a long time as well, going, why have, why have they not asked me? But now they have. So so thank you, Jane. Thank you, James. So a little bit about myself. I am a qualified psychologist, so I'm an occupational psychologist. What does that mean? Uh, not a lot to your average person. I specialise in, in organisational culture and how leadership and management behaviour in particular impacts that. So a lot of my work as a consultant is with everyone from middle manager up to board level. So doing all sorts of things, whether it's one-to-one coaching, executive coaching or running leadership development workshops or doing research and, and kind of all that good stuff. And then my doctoral research, which I know we're going to talk about later on in the episode, was on something a little bit different. And that was very deliberate because I sometimes feel that the research into leadership and management, there's a lot of it. And I kind of thought, what am I going to add to that? So I wanted to do something a little bit different. That's me in a nutshell. That's brilliant. Thank you. That's really helpful. And just before we get on to some of the more detailed topics like the research, things like that, I'd be really interested because you've been you've been an occupational psychologist for quite a little while, a little bit longer than some of our guests. High expertise, I'm going to go with. And I guess I'm really interested because I came to it quite late in my career Mm -hmm. And I just wondered, do you think organisations and even the general public are more aware of the field of occupational, organisational psychology um, and kind of the associated business psychology and work? Is it, is it more or is it just that there's more people sort of in the academic field? Is it, is it actually, are you seeing more out there and more awareness of it in the workplaces? Okay, so there's a number of questions there. No, I'm not seeing any more awareness. I mean, <laughs> so I diverted from the world of Oxyc just for a bit and went into kind of frontline operational management and strategic leadership roles, covering everything from kind of customer services through to IT, and then came back in when I set up Halo. But wherever I've been on my journey, so whether it's at the start, back in the 90s, whether it was when I went into local government or even now, when I talk about occupational, organisational, business psychology, more often than not with the lay public, and by lay public I mean my client base, I met with blank stares. 
And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think we haven't got our house in. I'm going to be really content. I'm, I'm straight out of the bat. Um, <laughs> where I, I don't think we've got our house in order um, in terms of being clear about who we are, what we stand for, what we call ourselves. So I think in the UK, it's still not that well known. However, that's juxtaposed against we've got more people coming through the master's programs than ever before. So I've just written a chapter for a new book that will be out next year for master's students. I think you contributed to to that book as well, Jane. And my chapter was about working in the field of, of occupational psychology. And one of the stats I share is in the UK alone, there's around 600 people graduating from their master's each year. And so you've got this kind of inundation of people coming into a field that not a lot of not a lot of clients, organisations know about. And what do we do about that? And that's that's one of the things that I'm passionate about educating both client organisations, but also students about in terms of the kind of roles that they can go into. See, there's a whole mishmash of, of stuff going on there, particularly in the UK. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I go through little cycles of one minute. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Definitely more people seem to know. And then I'll I'll walk into an organisation that is big enough that I'm absolutely confident I won't have to spend 20 minutes just explaining what I do and what I don't do. And I'm I'm very much on the periphery of the field. But I think it's very interesting watching what is quite, I guess, a young field in, Mm -hmm. in sort of the grander scheme of things trying to find its way to make its presence better known so that people could do it. And I'm always, I'm consistently, I wouldn't say disappointed, but I'm consistently concerned that people are uh, adopting interventions, working with consultants, and they don't know this really rich, mm. much better evidence-based material, client, uh, uh, consultants, et cetera, that are out there. So I just, I'm always interested in that question. I guess we'll get a little bit on now to one of the many reasons we've asked you to join us. And that's your research. You mentioned it already. And mm-hmm. I guess just before we go into it, the, the topic itself, I'd love to just hear a little, uh, share a little bit with the audience about what the topic is and how you went about choosing it. And indeed, what made you go and study it? My area of, of research for my doctorate was on female entrepreneurship. So, so women business owners, particularly of micro businesses. And so I did two studies um, around that. And I was particularly interested in... A, how women define success in relation to being a business owner. And secondly, the psychological factors that denote success. So the reasons behind my study were many and varied, Jane. So partly it was born out of my own frustration, but also increasing interest in capitalism and anti-capitalism and misogyny and the kind of narrative that we see out there in the world about what constitutes a successful business owner. So whether it's stuff like, you know, and that's perpetuated on programs like The Apprentice and Dragon's Den and all that stuff. Mm. 
And it's, you know, my my instinct for, for, for many years now has been it's it's kind of very masculine in its in its in the basis of the narrative. It's very capitalist, this assumption that to be successful is about five, six, seven figures. You, this assumption that to be successful you must want to grow and get employees and all that stuff. And so that leads to kind of my second reason, which is I just wanted to make sense of my own journey because that never resonated with me. I have a very successful business. You know, I, I I get booked out months in advance, but I've never had the aspiration to grow or, you know, or be a millionaire. Does that make me any less successful? So I was kind of curious about that. And then finally, my increasing annoyance, my husband says I live in a constant state of annoyance. I think that's because I'm I'm kind of perimenopausal. I'm nearly 50. I just feel like I get annoyed at stuff and injustices. And I've just become increasingly annoyed over the years at some of the, pardon my phrase, the bullshit that I get see peddled on places like Instagram and LinkedIn that are aimed at women setting up their businesses, often who don't necessarily have lots of money but are wasting money on things that have lack an evidence base but cost a lot of money, you know, coaching programs. And if I see the word mastermind one more time, you know, and just being run by people who I question their morals. So there's like there was a whole mishmash of stuff, Jane. Mm-hmm. That's a very long, convoluted answer. So yeah, that's kind of what really powered me to do the thing. Okay, so there's about 40 questions that I've now got in my head and I'm trying to make sense of them because all I can really think about is you mentioned what what regular listeners of ours will know is like a, a tinderbox, if you will. You talked about <laughs> capitalism and anti-capitalism, which is mm. we're not, as a, as a podcast, we're about work and yet somehow yeah. we end up on that topic quite a lot. So I'm I'm going to leave that for a second, but I'm probably going to come, I'm just warning you now, I'll probably come back to it because I... <laughs> I just feel like it shapes so much of how we think about the world. Absolutely. And we're so unaware of it. And I think one of the things we try and do on the podcast is get people just to think about that a bit more. So we'll probably come back to that. But I guess the first thing that crops to mind is your own journey. So you talked about your own journey and not trying to make sense of that. And I guess mm-hmm. the very obvious question is, did it help you make sense of that? And I guess more more broadly, what did you either learn about yourself or, or what was it around your journey? Did you find that continued or did once once you started the research was it actually okay it's much more about these other people now yeah so one of the things it definitely did in terms of my own personal journey well actually there were two things it did it reinforced how stupid I was at the beginning or not stupid but naive Mm -hmm. when I started my business so the first six months of Halo I didn't have any work at all. And there is nothing more terrifying than seeing your savings slowly ebb away and you've got a mortgage to pay and all that stuff and there's no other income coming in. So it kind of, it it helped me understand the lessons from that naivety and subsequently how I can help other women wanting to leave corporate life, whether they've worked in HR or learning and development or as an oxyc and they want to set up on their own. Secondly, it made me really blooming proud. I don't know if you found this on your own journey, Jane, but it can be very easy as a one-person business or micro-business or even a a, kind of a a larger business of never stopping and, and pausing and taking breath and just taking a moment to acknowledge and reflect 
how far you've come and how well you've done. And I realised I hadn't done that. And so the doctorate and the utter privilege of listening to other women's stories forced me to do that. And I, I kind of ended up just feeling really proud of, of where I've got to and what I've achieved with, with Halo. It's really lovely. And I think certainly that idea of either research or academic learning or something offering that space to, yeah, learn and stretch, but also to go, oh, I didn't even know I could do this. And I didn't know and I didn't think about my own personal reflections. So that's lovely. And I think one of the things we talk about a lot, probably too much on, or maybe not on this podcast, is about reflection and the role of reflection in people's careers but also in in organizations and like what's the right balance and how do you do it and and I think it's just always lovely to hear someone who has taken that and has been through that experience it's just really nice to hear so thank you for sharing that on a very practical basis how did you find the process like were there people who wanted to talk about it how did you balance your own life um it feels like an enormous thing to do because I mean most people when they do academic PhDs or, or, or will do them full time and over four years. I know this is a different thing, but what was that experience like for you? So I'm not going to lie. It was, it was hard. It's, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do during a pandemic. And whilst looking after my terminally ill mum, who died just as I was beginning to get ready for my second study and sort of my thesis. So there was a whole load of stuff and trying to keep my own business going during a pandemic. So lots of your listeners will know uh, Dr. Rachel Lewis and Dr. Joe Yarker, who obviously run the doctorate programme at Birkbeck. And Rachel and Joe are always taking the mickey out of me just because, and this is something that's been my whole life, particularly my working life. I am known as somebody super organised. And people always ask, and I used to get asked it in an interview, how are you, you know, what do you do? And I think when something's natural to you, you don't know how you do it. And so when people ask, how are you so organised? I don't know. But it's actually one of the things that came out of my second study is women, most of the women I interviewed were high in conscientiousness. The stories they shared, it was evidence to me, they were high in conscientiousness in terms of the big five personality factors. And we know that people who are high in conscientiousness manage their time really well have systems and structures in place and so it was it was that kind of managing my diary ruthlessly having very clear boundaries and having some systems and structures in place that enabled me to successfully navigate the doctorate whilst running a business whilst looking after my dying mum and and all sorts of, of of other things so yeah and and then underpinning it all and I say that so I have quite a few oxykes for example who drop me a line and say, oh, I'm thinking of doing the doctorate and, you know, what would your advice be? And I think my advice more than being organised is you've got to really want to do the topic. You've got to be motivated and love it because you'll have that inevitable, I think Shakespeare called it the long dark night of the soul in, in Henry the Fourth. We all have those moments during the doctorate and reminding yourself of why this this research why this topic matters to you and and why it's important for the world is what will keep you going in those inevitable down dark moments that that we experience deep i know jane deep well i was going to say intense was what i was going to go with it sounds quite intense <laughs> intense um, yes uh but yes deep to so i guess 
you've, you've alluded a little bit to some mm-hmm. of already to some of the things that you were looking at and that mm-hmm. you were finding and that you were discussing. But I want to come back to something you said a little bit earlier about what you were looking at, about this idea of success. Mm-hmm. Because we've talked quite a lot on the podcast about a couple of things. We've talked about the the the, the, the concerns that we have around things like employee engagement and the this idea of purpose in work being something that is everyone should want because we we worry that it it extracts value out of people or it's intentional is to extract value out of people I shouldn't speak for James I worry it's um it's the intention is to extract value out of people that they're not getting paid for so oh you love this so much you find so purpose and I see it a lot in the charity sector Mm. not necessarily deliberately right so people are just like I love my job so much I end up doing x y and z and I'll uh, there's a I'll never forget, there was an academic paper, the first, my first paper I read at Birkbeck when I did my MSc, which was about the call of the zookeepers. And it was about zookeepers who they'd done a, a study on how much additional fat, uh, labor they were doing beyond their contract. And we often talk on the podcast about not the purpose, not finding purpose in your work, but instead talking about the purpose of work in your life. So what are you looking for in your work to give mm-hmm. to your life, whether it's financial stability, et cetera. And we talk about it a lot and we, we, we're really interested in that. So I, I, it begs the question, what did you, what sort of things were you finding around this idea of success? What were you looking at? What did you find? What are your reflections on how that differs for different, for or for this cohort you were looking at? Yeah. So this was the interesting thing. So my first study was a, a review of what research from high economically developed countries had said over the last 20 years. And none of those studies, not one, had sought to define success. They had foisted upon the participants a predetermined definition of success, which was all about financial measures, so sales, profit, turnover. So that was kind of the starting basis. And so my study is the first known study to specifically define success in the words of female business owners themselves. And there were five things that came out consistently time and time again in my second study across every single woman that I spoke to. And only one of those self-defined factors was about money. So look, let's not be naive. We live in a capitalist world. You know, you you can't do much without money. You just can't. And so one of the factors that every woman said was, I just want to earn enough. I want to earn enough to have a good life. I'm not interested in earning kind of six or seven or eight figures. I want to earn enough to be able to pay my mortgage, to go on holiday, to have enough money for a rainy day and just to have a good life. Um, that was pr- that was profound and very marked across all the the conversations. But here's the thing: the four other stronger factors um, within the definition that came out were non-financial. So, in particular, um, there was this thing around success was about making a tangible difference to clients was about reputation so having a fantastic reputation where it's word of mouth people come to you because of word of mouth because of the quality of the work that you do 
And then there were these other two factors around, which probably will be no surprise to you, Jane, around freedom and autonomy was one. So just being able to manage your diary and your life as you are able to and see fit. So there were some wonderful stories from quite a few of the women about if I want to go off for a bike ride one afternoon, I can. And I don't need to worry. And then there was a really interesting one, interesting for me, because it's a theory that I've always been interested in, but not very well known, even across our profession, the theory of thriving by Gretchen Spritzer. And that was evidence. So thriving was a very clear success factor in terms of how women defined success. So the theory of thriving suggests that when we're thriving, there are two things we see. We're learning all the time, but we get a sense of energy and vitality from our work. And one of the women I spoke to, she she encapsulated it beautifully, Jane, because she said, I am in love with my business. My business was a part, I would be in love with it. And that for me, absolutely encapsulated. Here is somebody who is thriving by being their own boss. Yes, it's scary. Yes, you don't always know where the next bit of work's coming from, but but they're loving it and they're in love with their business. And I think that's really infectious and then almost creates a virtuous circle. Um, it, it, people want to work with you because you give off a good energy and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that's that's the story that I've been able to tell from my own research that really challenges the typical research that takes place around business ownership and entrepreneurship. It's almost overwhelming listening to you because it occurs to me and 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 you know, bear in mind I spend large portions of my day talking about the experience of work, the experience of business ownership, trusteeship, all of these things, right? These are, these are, and yet the narrative of a specific type of entrepreneurship is so predominant mm. that I would never have even associated it with the group of women that you're, that I know you're talking about, because I would probably sit somewhere in that category. And so would a number of the others. And I, it is so far away from my understanding of some of the, my, like some of my peers and some of my friends who own businesses I, I would never even consider calling them that because of that understanding of what that word means in this society. I can't speak for other, you know, other developed economic societies, but I can, certainly can for, for here in the UK. And, you know, you mentioned um, Dragon's Den. It's just unfathomable to me almost that that's the same group. So I think that's really, really interesting. And I guess, I guess my question to you, and this is not in terms of your research, but just as a, as a person who's interested in this field, from one to another, if this group that you looked at's experience is so different from how we talk about it in generic senses, what could that mean about all of the other groups that you might not have, not have researched yet or yeah. other groups that might not? What might it be like for the 18-year-old who accidentally has done some really good uh, digital tools and now is like running his own business or the 55-year-old woman who started knitting after retirement and is just doing something small. We know, I mean, I'm guessing we know very little about all of these different groups of people. Absolutely. And it's it's one of the things I talked about in in the chapter of my research where you talk about future implications and and kind of practitioner recommendations and policy recommendations and 
there's there's so many groups that are under researched, particularly from a psychological perspective. And you know, I think my own criticism of our profession of occupational psychology, we've played a part in that through our silence. So when I was doing my first study, the research papers were dominated by the fields of business studies, economics, social psychology, anthropology, sociology. Not one paper came from the field of occupational, organisational, industrial, whatever you want to call it. And that's fundamentally wrong. And But also it's a great, it was a great opportunity because it's like, right, enter stage left. But what surprises me, Jane, is, you know, it's two and a half years on, well, three years on nearly since I started. And when I talk to to those who are coming into the field or maybe you've been in the field for a while and who are interested in doing the doctorate and I ask them about, well, what's your topic of interest? Nearly everyone, they keep saying resilience or leadership and management or teams or and don't get me wrong there's still value we can add but I always ask the question of those people why aren't you thinking of small business owners why aren't you thinking of entrepreneurship we we've got a role to play in this but we the fact that we don't talk about entrepreneurship and small business ownership and SMEs and all that stuff in master's programs is perpetuating the problem Um, so I would like to see more of us as psychologists engaging in research in this particular field. So I didn't know we were going to go there. No, I didn't know but I was going to go there either. I'm going to say, so uh, pet, <laughs> this is a pet rant time. Um, 99% of businesses in the UK, SMEs, right? Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, an SME is a small and medium-sized enterprise. And it's in the UK, it's under 250. I think the US define it's 500. I'm not sure. But I, it, it's, 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 you know, in the three figures. Yeah. And below. And it's 99% of our businesses. Yeah. And it doesn't look like that when you go into the academic work. And it doesn't look like that when you go into the practitioner world. So one of the, I'll share a story merely, really to achieve a satisfactory confirmation bias for both of us, (laughs) which is I was, I was chatting to some HR people, really quite experienced. And I think very good HR people, large group. They're on a, so it's a, on an electronic platform, probably about 40 of them. Some consultants, some in-house, all of that. And I asked a question. I was So I do nearly all of my work with SMEs. And I asked a question about how an HR function would work if they didn't have an HR function. So like a very specific part, a, a policy that they do. I said, oh, if, that, if they don't have HR in-house because it's a small org, how have you seen that done? And literally it was like, it was like wind through the wind through the bulrushes. Mm. Everyone was like, what do you mean they don't have an HR function? I was like, well, generally organizations over under 50 people, they might have an administrator. Yeah. And they will outsource some of their senior. Occasionally they've got an HR officer. And they certainly won't have a learning and development individual and things like that. So I was asking her, and and it 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 was at that yet again, like I just was like, oh my God, why am I talking? Not why am I talking to these people? They're educated and they're brilliant. And I'm sure they could have helped me fashion an answer, but it's not relevant for any of my clients and it's not relevant for anyone working or it's hard to check the relevance of anyone working in that kind of environment. And I think I just, I mean, it's, it's just 
baffling when you really think about it. But then I coming back to money, it occurred to me for the very same reason we set up World of Work. If you're under 250 people, you do not have the number of people that you can get the cost per head down enough to be able to do organizational development interventions. Because when you've got 10,000 people, you might be spending a pound per head and it's still, you're going to do something really. Whereas if you're, if you're 10 people, (laughs) there's only so many ways you can cut that. Absolutely. And I, I just, I guess, throwing it back to you, what should we be doing in the field to ensure that the inequality, which is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about that part of the of our of our society doesn't earn us enough money, so we don't research it. Mm. Is that or is that what we're saying? It's a, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give the stock psychology answer of it depends, Jane. Fair dues. I think there's a couple of things that spring to mind on on the back of your very justifiable rant because um, I, I feel the same. And what's been really interesting to me is this hasn't been deliberate either. But over the last couple, over the last eighteen months, I've had a few SMEs come through to me to do work with me. So they don't have HR function, as you say, but word of mouth has spread, and there's been an issue whether it's a growing management cohort in a in a growing SME, or whether it's well being issues on the back of the pandemic. So they've reached out. So there are, there are. just because you're an SME doesn't mean you, you aren't going to engage with somebody in the field of HR or OxyC or, or whatever. In terms of research, I think it's about, and I, I, this, is, this is me going back to my corporate leadership role, which is what's the problem we're trying to solve or what are the problems we're trying to solve? And so there's something around what are the issues what are the people issues what are the culture issues what are the what are the personal issues that business owners founders are grappling with and therefore that should spur inspiration of questions to research whether it's through an MSE dissertation or whether it's through to doctoral research or whether it's a community of of practitioners coming together and doing some freelance research and then the other thing is it this is one of the reasons jane why i share so much freely why i have you know i i get very (laughs) well-meaning that's me being generous very well-meaning people come through into my linkedin direct messages saying you should monetize why am i doing an american voice that's so presumptuous of me i'm going to do an american (laughs) voice um american accent you should monetize your ebooks and you should monetize this. And I, I just give the same response, but it's like, like, cause they think I'm an idiot and I'm being very, a very naive female business owner. And I always say it's, it's deliberate. I deliberately keep my ebooks and other resources for free because for as many people that can afford to work with me at Halo, primarily corporate clients, there are as many who will never, ever be able to afford to work with someone like you, Jane, or someone like me, but they need help. And it's one of my core values in that I feel so passionate about what we do. And I see it and I take my ethics as a practitioner really seriously. I want to help. And so the best way I can help is by sharing some stuff for free. And I'd like to see more of us do it. Not everything needs to be monetized. 
mine's the only study that's looked at values in relation to business ownership. Um, and so I think those business owners who have a very clear sense of their personal values, it just helps you navigate and make good business decisions potentially. And that's one of mine. Yeah. Give stuff free, not because you want something off the back of it, but you never know, you might get stuff off the back of it. So I get business off the back of my free stuff. We're a community interest company mm. and we made that decision really early doors for exactly the same reasons, mm. which was like, if we were measuring success mm. by that normative approach, we, we might still give things away for free because we mm. might be doing it as lost leaders or whatever, or try, but that's, we were so early doors going, we, we'd go and do something else probably because we both got less experience in this than we would do in some of our other fields. Mm. But when you know why you want to do it, and what values are guiding that and why you've come to that conclusion, it's a lot easier to be able to go, well, I want to reach as many people as possible. Exactly. Isn't that, I remember we, it's so funny you say that that happened to you because when lockdown first happened in 2020, James and I just literally sat down and went, right, let's rewrite all of our remote working stuff, make it contextual. And we're just going to run every day, two free sessions. And we're going to turn off the numbers and anyone who wants to come, just get them on there. And we, we, we had like three, 400 people come through in the first week. And about three people, and they weren't strangers on LinkedIn, they were friends of mine, were messaging me going, you know, you're saying, rod for your own back and all of this. And I was like, no, no, I'm good, thanks. It's just, you know, and actually for us, it kept us sane Mm -hmm. because it felt felt relevant and like we were connected to something. And I also just want to go back to something else you mentioned. So you talked about pay not being, money not being the major issue, Mm -hmm. about values and things I always remember and I know he's not an occupational psychologist so I'll get in trouble for this but I always remember Dan Pink talking about what he refers to as drive which Mm. has its I would either overlap or roots in in Desi and Ryan's self-determination theory and but the his phrasing I always love when he talks about it when he does his animation which is you pay them enough to take money off the table as an issue And one, I love that because it challenges this idea that money's a motivator, which I think for some people in certain personalities and certain, the way they equate money with things like Mm -hmm. status and and, and standards and expectation and respect, I understand. But I guess coming back to your women, I'm interested, does that, does that resonate? I know they're not getting paid, they're earning or they're, they're trying to turn over or they're trying to grow, but is it, is it about enough to meet this limit that it's no longer an issue for them and they can put it aside and focus on their business do you think is that is that something that could be similar I think that's that's really insightful Jane yeah absolutely and look because it'd be very easy for your listeners without knowing kind of the characteristics of my participants to go well I imagine they're because I was looking at coaching and consultancy businesses and so the assumption could be well, there's an element of privilege there and, and so on and so forth. But actually, a, a surprising phenomena was more than half of the women that I spoke to with the sole wage earners. And so there was a huge amount of pressure mm. on them, actually. So this wasn't, they weren't supported by anyone else. It wasn't like a nice little side hustle or something like that. Um, this was serious business. You know, their fa- their family and loved ones and their own kind of survival depended on their businesses working. And so, yeah, there is an element of the money needs to come in, but it doesn't need to be huge amount. If it is huge amounts of money, happy days, but actually that's not the drive. It's enough to have a good life and look after my, whatever my family looks like 
I always use the metaphor of the Rubik's Cube, they're kind of connected because if you build a great reputation through the quality of the work, through who you are, through really clear value set, through your integrity, that's going to attract clients to you because we know, particularly for one person and micro businesses, it's about you. You are the brand. And so people want to work with people. And so how you show up and who you are can either attract or repel. Those factors are all intertwined. I think my research has has kind of garnered some interest, particularly with the emphasis on values, personal values. So I looked at the holy trinity of personality, competencies and values. um, And I think there's been quite a lot of interest in the values aspect. And I guess just just finishing off on your research, although I Mm. dangerously could talk about this all day. um, (laughs) What do you think it means for those women, women like your participants Mm. who have either set up or are setting up or are thinking Mm -hmm. about setting up businesses? What what is either more difficult for them or what is different for them that they should maybe if they were listening, be aware of based on what you found? Yeah, so because we've not talked about the psychological factors that help, but there were two potential hurdles that came up loud and clear. So I wanted to look at the factors that that enable success because nobody really looks at that. They look at what goes wrong. But unsurprisingly, a couple of things did come up that could be potential hurdles, and they were financial competence and feeling confident and competent around your finances. So there was a nervousness from among most of the women I spoke to. And in fact, in the literature, it, it, it suggests that women business owners tend to be very nervous around finances and accounting. But actually what, what the women in my second study had done is they'd put in place things that help systems and processes and other help. So whether it's getting an accountant or whatever to actually mitigate that potential lack of competence or confidence and then the second hurdle for your listeners who who are thinking of setting up a business is a fear of selling but the hard sell and not wanting to do that but actually what came out of the stories and again it goes back to that kind of success criteria is not one of the women I spoke to had to do that what I think is very icky fake hard sell you know you've just connected with someone and you immediately within a nanosecond slide into their dms and start trying to sell them stuff not one of the women had to do that and they didn't want to do that so they talked about not wanting to do the hard sell not feeling able to do the hard sell but actually just through talking to me in the interviews they kind of came to the realization that that needn't be a hurdle because they haven't had to do that because of how they show up because of the quality of their work they do and because of the amazing networks that they have they haven't had to do that but it is a potential thing to to pay attention to and again it's one of my own frustrations again when I'm meeting with groups of master's students or people who are thinking of setting up a business the first question I ask is what's your digital presence we're in 2022 whether you like it or not, it's a hyper-connected, always-on world. And if you don't have a strong digital presence, if you're not putting out good content, you're going to struggle. It's a differentiator and it can it can help you not have to do the hard sell. There endeth my 300th sermon of the podcast episode. 
we're coming to the end of our time, which is really frustrating because I've got another five or six questions. <laughs> so I might have to ask you to come back is the honest answer because I think there's a lot more to talk about. That's, that's, do you know what? I've done two-parters for quite a few podcasts now. <laughs> well, we might we might have to be another one of those, I that's think. That's fine. Um, I'm happy to do that. In the meantime, though, just before we do, people are interested. They're listening to you. You, I mean, anyone who is familiar with us will know because we share you quite regularly that you've got a big presence online. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go into that right now, mm-hmm. although everyone can go and have a quick look because you do huge amounts of free free sharing on LinkedIn and mm-hmm. other forms. But how can people learn more about you, learn about Halo Psychology, get in touch? Yeah, so the easiest way is to go on LinkedIn, find me, connect with me. Always happy to connect. Just don't do the icky hard sell. And you can go to my website, which will probably be in the show notes, so halopsychology.com. There's all sorts of information about how you can work with me, but there's all sorts of free stuff that you can pillage away on the website as well. That's brilliant. So thank you very much for joining us today. Hopefully we'll have you back soon and we'll talk a little bit about the psychological factors and we can talk a little bit more Mm. about your sketch notes as well, which Mm. everyone... I know a number of our listeners are massive fans of. Uh, In the meantime, thank you very much for joining us and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget, as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that everyone can attend. You can sign up for these and our newsletter, The Wow Mail, on our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hi, it's Jane. I just wanted to say thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you enjoyed it, if you have a question or if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at worldofwork underscore IO. Don't forget, you can also find out more about what we do, including our online seminars, workshops and development programs on www.worldofwork.io. 